Hello, and welcome to this bonus edition of the Drawn Today podcast, where we encourage you to draw every day. In this episode, we feature a lecture from Jane Frank from 2011's Aluxcon. Jane is an agent and owner of Worlds of Wonder Art Agency. During this lecture, Jane discusses buying and selling art, different ways of marketing your art, and in general, unveils the shroud that covers the mystery that is the original art market. Without a doubt, I see artists scratching their heads, sitting on the floor, trying to figure out what to price their art at. They have all this time ahead of time to do this, but nevertheless, they put it off in denial until the very last possible minute, and it's like the worst possible thing that they can possibly do. It's like partying with their babies. I understand that, you know? Uh, At other types of conventions, like science fiction conventions that I'm used to, they can take weasel ways out. I mean, they put NFS on it, not for sale. You know, so they just take it off the market and hope maybe somebody will approach them on the side and, and make them an offer. You know, they don't have to confront this. Collectors sometimes just put their art into auctions. Another weasel way. Let somebody else have the problem. You know, let the market decide what the price should be. Just not so I don't have to do it. You know, all of these things in order to uh, avoid coming to grips with having to put a price on what you have created which is a very difficult thing to do, and it is actually just as difficult for collectors, who also love what they have bought. But the the fact of the matter is, unless you can actually be objective about what you love, you will never be able to put a price on it that will accomplish what you want. I mean, there are many reasons for selling art. Making money is one of them, but believe it or not, that's, that only accounts for a couple of the reasons that people go about selling art. There are actually more reasons than that, and not all of them have to do with making a profit. Okay? But the fact is you have to be able to separate yourself from it as the very first step. Now, for collectors, that may come after 20 years. And funnily enough, it's also true of artists. <laughs> they have things that they have made and, and, or created that they just cannot sell for 20 years. And there are many reasons for that, sometimes because they painted in their children or their, or their spouses, or it has some sentimental attachment to them, you know, or they think they never can top it. I mean, one artist that I know could never sell something that he made because he believed that it was the best he had ever done and he will never be able to do it again. Uh. And he was literally afraid that his hands would not be able to do that. Uh, I understand that. But the fact is, is that as sellers, just like buyers have to be aware, we have to be very, very aware of what we're doing as sellers. We have to be very careful. You know what this means, right? Caveat mm-hmm. emptor. It's not something that we say as commonly as caveat emptor because many of us are, or most of the time, consumers that are being told over and over again how careful we have to be when we're buying things. But the fact of the matter is that we have to be very, very careful when we're pricing things. Just as careful, in fact. So today, what we're going to be here for is your reason for selling, and to try to figure that out, 
to figure out how prices come to be, a little bit of history, if you will, or a background and what the factors are that affect the prices of, of, that you put on your artwork, what it means to actually put a price on it that's going to get it sold, which is not so easy to do when it's hitting a moving target. Why should we care about this? <coughs> it's because if we don't know what a price should be, we're going to be taken, we're going to be scanned ourselves, right? If you don't know what a price you should put on things, how will you know what to accept? How will you know what the, what the price should be? Here are some of the reasons I've come up with for deciding, you know, for a purpose for, for setting a price, as well, the reasons for selling. Uh, you and I, as a dealer, are both the number one category very often to establish or build an artist's reputation. I don't know how many artists here are, whether you would label yourself as established artists or whether you would be in the trade called emerging, right, just beginning your career, you need to establish your reputation. And that's, that leads to one kind of pricing, okay? To settle an estate or a court order, a forced sale, is another kind of sale. Some of you may be in that predicament. I have been that in that predicament uh, where uh, for a variety of reasons, you're having a baby, you're building a house, you have to move, whatever it is, a divorce, you gotta sell. For collectors, and for some artists too, uh, you want to declutter. I mean, you've got just too much stuff and you want to, what we call, refine or refocus your collection um, code word for, I'm just sick and tired of it, time to sell it. All of us are engaged in the same sort of um, endeavor when it comes to maintaining an orderly market, and I'll talk about this later also, all of these things. You can price things to exploit a market. You can. And you can set prices to raise cash because you need the money. Okay, you just need the money fast. And of course, for you, perhaps, if you're not doing this as a hobby, it's to earn a living. We're going to go into more depth about these things. But there are factors, the four main factors that affect your price are the unique characteristics of what you've created or what you own. In uh, sales jargon, this is called USP. Has anyone ever heard of a unique selling proposition? A USP? Yeah. That's what that is. It's the thing that sets what you've created apart from everybody else. It's unique. You know, it's, it's original, of course, but it's also got its very unique characteristics. Outside economic forces also shape prices, of course, as we know today. We're living through times which are greatly affecting this. How much time you have to sell it in. If you have the rest of your life to sell the art, it leads perhaps to one price if you have to sell it tomorrow or another, and how badly you need to sell it. Remember the forced sales. It all boils down to one word, <laughs> voodoo. You can take into, you can do all of this manipulation, generally we're going to go through all of that here, the unique characteristics, uh, uh, the history of the artist, the reputation of the, um, of the painting, the you know, uh, association with the book that was published, all of this, and it all boils down to something uh, indefinable that I call voodoo, because there is no one price for art. 
it has no actual tangible value outside of the price you put on it and that one person that day in that situation that wants it from you at the price you both agree on is fair. That is it. Tomorrow another person comes who's interested, they're willing to pay $200 less. The day after that, someone might be willing to pay $200 more. It's, like I said, a moving target, a floating number. There is no one price that I could, that's it, I say. $1,350 for that, that's the price. How do I come up with that? I mean, what makes it, what makes it that? The art, the pricing art, is, I suppose that. What we aim for is pricing that's just right. Just right, you know, like three little bears, right? Pricing that's too high will deter buyers from even entering into negotiations with you. They're not even gonna say, give you a, a, an offer. They're just gonna walk away, okay? They're not gonna lead to any sales. They're not, they're gonna scare people. You all probably know that already from experience. Pricing that's just right that's too low uh, is, is also not good, because if that just cheats you out of money that you could have made, that other $200 that you could have made the next day. And from my point of view, and I hope from yours, it's going to really damage the potential for your reputation, because you don't want to do it. It's a detriment to your career to underprice what you've created, right? I mean, nobody wants you to, to do that, to actually, uh, and it's also sort of degrading the hobby as a whole. What we want to see are prices that are forever marching upward, not a market that's in continual decline. So we're all in this endeavor to try to make things, prices sort of move along in a, in a more or less forward motion. Let's take an example of the concept of what meaning price to sell, okay? Uh, I'm using examples here for the most part that are the art that I sold or art that I know about. Okay, so that I'm not I'm not going to be using you know the uh, examples from this show. This isn't a, an artist that I do represent, however, Jim Burns. Okay, so I, as you may know, I uh, or do you know? Is anyone uh, knows Worlds of Wonder? I'm an agent, and I yes, and I and I sell for Jim Burns, who's a British artist, and I have done for for more than a decade or more. Fifteen years, 1991. Nice. Actually, oh my God! <laughs> First time I actually met Jim Burns at the Hague, oh. the Worldcon. Um, that was a long, long time ago, and that was actually the day that I decided at that convention to go into business. And so I went to the next door and I printed the business cards that said, "I'm uh, on the on the plane." This is a little story on the plane going over there. So what am I going to call myself? This is an opportunity for going to business. I had no idea what to call myself. So for seven hours on the flight over to The Hague, I thought of this name and that name, and it can't be too bizarre. You know, and I said, well, I settled on sort of with my husband and we talked back and forth, Worlds of Wonder, and I said, uh, Audrey Whalen is going to hate me because Mike Whalen had just published Works of Wonder and other books and just like that with that name. I said, well, when I get back, I'll call Audrey and I'll make up to, you know, I'll, I'll explain the situation to her. But I said, this is the time when I can, I can do something. I want it to be a matchmaker. It's a, uh, a situation that we fortunately are no longer in today. But believe it or not, back in the, the days of the dinosaurs in this field, there was no way for people to buy your art, except if they went to science fiction conventions. 
that was the only way that the art was accessible. If you wrote to publishers, you might be sent slides and put in touch with the artist, which is how we began collecting the art in the 1970s. Because there wasn't art in art shows either. But when there became art in art shows, it was the only place to find it. And so there was no way for artists to interact. There was no internet. You know, it's not like you could get to a website. And there were no conventions like this dedicated to the art. And people would come to my house and say, where did you find that? And I'd say, oh, well, you know, I, I wrote the publisher or I did this. And we were very uh, aggressive in that way. Mm -hmm. They said, gee, I wish I could own that. And I started making side sales for artists and not taking a commission. And then I woke up and said, you know, what this field needs is someone who's willing to help people access this art to act as a basically a matchmaker. Not to make a huge amount of money, but to simply be a matchmaker. And so here was an opportunity to meet Jim Burns and Steve Crisp and other British artists that otherwise I'd only heard about. I said, this is the opportunity. So that's how Worlds of Wonder came to be. I printed up business cards in a machine and the in a, uh, a shopping mall next to the hotel, and started handing them out, and I was in business. Well, here we are, Jim Burns. In 2002, in my catalog 17, because Jim Burns decided, and I had no choice but at that time but to agree with him that the world loves Spider-Man <laughs> and the X-Men, and that this would be, you know, basically a very valuable painting, we put $7,500 on it. I felt so strongly about it that I shipped it into San Diego Comic-Con. I hung it up and said, this is, the, this is it. You know, I'm going to sell this painting here. All these comic fans, right? They're sure to love this painting, and I'm going to sell it. I may not get $7,500 for it, but I'll come close. Well, I spent the money shipping it in along with other paintings. I sold other paintings, not this one. Turns out that people who collect comic art don't care who Jim Burns is. You know, they want comic art. And it turns out that people who collect illustration art don't care about Spider-Man. Right? Sits unsold. I try to sell it. I lower the price. I say, okay, make me an offer. Not 75. I'll take six. I'll take five. Catalog 24, 2008. I try it out again. This time Jim has the bright idea. We'll just cut it up. It was for three paperbacks, by the way. Times Arrow present, uh, past, and future. Use on three paperback covers. You can see how that would be here, right? Mm -hmm. He said, if somebody wants it, we're going to cut it up into thirds. You could co-sell it. $1,800 each. I said, if you think I'm going to cut this painting up, you're crazy. <laughs> I, I don't cut paintings up thinking that I'm going to make a sale. So it's going to stay here until I get someone who bites at $1,800. Well, guess what? Nobody's. Well, here we are. It did sell on eBay in September this year for, well, I listed it at $2,500 and it sold at $2,600. Very happily to someone in Canada. Same painting, same size, same quality that at some point in time, I, in my craziness, thought it might be worth $7,500, and actually it was worth $2,600. Why? Could not, couldn't he have said in 2002, $2,500? He could have. Would it have sold then? I don't know. I really don't know. Maybe it needed people to see it 
for 10 years to convince them that, well, if I wasn't, it certainly is worth 2600 right? Maybe it's because I put it on eBay and 8 million eyeballs saw it instead of 130,000 in San Diego. I don't know. I don't know the answers to this. I only know that at some point in time, Jim woke up one day and said, I've had it. It's out of here. Get rid of it. Sell it. Fine. You want to sell it. I'll get it sold. That's my job. <clears throat> See, they're going to be priced to sell, or it's not. That's the point. It's not an easy uh, concept to deal with. Pricing to sell is not also universal. There are <coughs> cultural differences here internationally and in what it means to price something to sell, whether you're going to be negotiating or not. So it's not always the case. It's complicated. Pricing to sell is a is a feeling <coughs> about something. That when you're when you're looking at the art the, or the client, the customer says, Yeah, that's a fair price. What makes them say that? You know, how does it how do prices come to be that way that the perception is that you are pricing your art fairly in this convention? Every year there are people who tell me so and so's art. It's lovely, it's nice, I love it, but he just wants too much for it. And yet right next door is somebody selling art twice as much and gets it sold. You know? So what, what is that? I mean, I'm a pragmatist. Of course, I also practice voodoo, but that's only my spare time. Basically, I'm a pragmatist, I'm a realist. I say there are, there's an orderliness to this. There is actually a rationale for pricing. And it starts with deciding on why you are selling, figuring out what it is that you've got that is special, analyzing the market, assessing your economic situation, like do you really need the money? You know, what are you doing? And then finding a buyer, which is why of course you're here. And it's agony, I can tell you, that it's worthwhile, really. I mean, it, it, it's not hit or miss here. It's worthwhile taking the time to do this because the more you get used to pricing art, yours or anyone else's, the better at it you become. It's like painting. <laughs> it's like any other skill. It seems like magic to you because you just don't do it or you have a hard time dealing with it. But the fact of the matter is that the more you do it, the more comfortable you get in looking at your own art and being objective about it and saying, yes, given the market, given this and given that, this is a $6,000 painting, and the more you do that, and the more you sell at that price, the more, the more, <laughs> it becomes just like voodoo, like magic, practicing magic. And sort of like law and order too, the more, the more you know about it, so you'll be able to appreciate the complexities. It's supposed to, like, it's like, uh, I don't know, you, you'll be able to understand the, 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 very, the fluctuations from day to day that affect things, and it won't be as foreign to you. It won't seem as exotic, okay? And you'll be able to adjust when there's a recession, when there's a, when you've had a, a traumatic experience in your personal life and you have to sell. I mean, you'll be able to adapt to these things with a, a, a better sensibility, let's put it that way. Furthermore, I would say the more, the more comfortable you are in defending your prices and being able to explain why one painting is $100 and another, another is 125 so that the person looking at it can agree with you that 
those prices are legitimate, those differences are real, uh, and that they should be paying $25 more. It's just like, it's like playing golf. Yes, you can juggle all these things all together all at one time, and, and somehow have it happen all at once. You, know, you can react <coughs> without having to struggle so much with the process. So let's talk about what it means to price to sell in a market characterized by negotiated prices. Um, you know, there are some, uh, in this business, you're obligated to sell. When you're, when you're a seller, you're obligated to put a price on things. Just like when you're buying pajamas or you're going to the dentist. It's a, a gentleman's agreement, you might say. It's a, a part of the tradition of the field that the person selling, if it is for sale, is obligated. It's their responsibility, in fact, to put a price on their goods, not to say, make me an offer. The only time that that's legitimate is when it's not for sale. Like you go to somebody's house, a collection, a museum, or something, and its assumption is that it's not for sale, and then it's okay to say to somebody, is that available? You know, are you willing to sell that? And then the other person will say, yeah, make me an offer. But it's not legitimate for me to go to you in this convention and say to you, and for you to say to me, make me an offer, when I say, how much is that? The problem is, in this market here, and there are some markets like that, that are characterized by negotiated prices. I'm going to take you through a selling situation. It's an example of what I mean. It's, it's going to involve a couple of paintings, and I think at the end you'll understand what I mean. Okay, so I'm going to start, and the examples have to do with Richard Powers. Uh, I represent, I represented Richard Powers when he was living, and I represent the estate now that he's gone. And this is a painting that is, uh, uh, that I sold, okay? And this is a painting by Richard Powers that I sold. And we're going to compare these two. You got those firmly fixed. The first painting is called Double Star. And on the left, I've listed its characteristics. And on the right is what I call Big Black, untidy. And I've listed its characteristics. So one is a published illustration. Now remember, this field is, and my specialty is selling illustrative art, right? Specialty science fiction and fantasy. Cover for Heinlein. Signed. Paperback from 1957, early. Right? The dimensions. The dimensions of this painting are smaller than this. Seven inches by nine inches. Illustration board, perfect shape, for sale in catalog 22 in 2007. I'm going to guess, I'm going to ask you to guess the listed price, and I sold it in 2007, the same year that it was listed in the catalog. Big Black, it's sort of technically unpublished, but it was used in the Shikon, uh, the World Science Fiction Convention program book where Richard Powers was guest of honor, created in 1991. Not signed, although it has his name on the back, the Masonite. Dimensions are 30 by 48. Your artists mostly here, so I think you understand when I say 30, 30 by 48 is like this, right? By like this. Got that? Comparison of these, of these two artworks. Heavy gypsum board, glued to 
board and wood door panel. Richard Powers was an eccentric. He painted on almost anything from cardboard boxes to, to wood door panels. He was a cookie. In this particular case, he, had, he ended up gluing to the board uh, uh, a piece of wood panel, another piece of masonite, gluing. As a result, since this was done in 1991, the top was like this. The oh. entire thing oh. was like this. It was like, uh, like this, okay? Oh. With permanent glue. So you, you know, as I learned, could not separate the top from the bottom. Potentially unrestorable. Offered for sale privately in 2010. I did sell it, 2011. So, how much? Anybody? How much, how much would I have listed that at? Anybody? Mm -hmm. Got any clues? Yeah? 500? Is my answer. <laughs> no. 4,200. Huh? 4,200. 4,200 is a reasonable guess given the size. This is the, before we decide on this completely, because remember, fine shape, 7 by 9 inches. This is the kind of damage I'm talking Think about the paint peeling. That's the paper peeling off the top. Okay? Think about this for a second. Is that the 7 by 9? or the? This is 30 by 48. Okay. Middle of it. Top, you see the board, and you see the paper peeling. That's shreds of paper exposing the white underneath. This is the corners, the scuffing <coughs> and the dirt. To give you a feeling for this. It's hard. It's hard to do. Yeah. Dirty, but those are my fingerprints. Oh. <laughs> Wiping across just to see what was what, what it looked like. Yeah. All right, so you get a feeling for just how filthy this was. Okay, I just had to do that. <laughs> Price this relative size. I'm trying to make this <laughs> relative sizes. You know, PowerPoint's not good for this, but okay, relative size. What's the price? The price of twelve thousand in the catalog. I sold it for seven. I asked before consulting with my restorer. I had dreams, the dreams of 3,500 to 400. It was dreams based on 30 by 48. Sold it for $900. Close to, getting close to your 500 for the small one, which would have been a good guess. Yeah. Cheap. Why? Why? You say, why? How could that be? Not only how could it be that I priced it at 12 and accepted seven. And how could I have thought of, you know, how did I end up with 900, okay? Well, it is the pragmatic, you know, uh, all of these characteristics that I listed before to the variables and the voodoo, okay? So listen, this is how I came up with 12,000. Anybody who could afford 10 can afford 12. Mm -hmm. Anybody who wants to pay 12 is certainly going to try to 10 or lower. Anybody who expects to pay 10 is going to start off at 8. He's going to hope that he's going to split the difference at 10. Can you follow me so far? I know my client. I have information he doesn't have. I have special information. What is that information? My information is that the Powers Estate would be tickled pink thinking that a painting is seven by nine inches, if they got $2,000, they'd be happy. Happy as larks. Me, I say it should be at least 
4,200 powers is important. These are rare. Getting assigned Heinlein in 1957, that's rare. I can always get the 4,200. I can always make the family happy. I'm going to shoot for eight. How do I get to eight? I find someone who's going to end up lowballing me at 12, thinking that they're going to get a bargain. How can they think that they're going to get a bargain? They're going to think that because they're going to believe me when I say this is worth $12,000. And when I say I'm se it's 12, I'm sending a message. I want to communicate. I'm, I'm sending a message, a really strong message that says this is an important painting. Sure, I'm not going to take get 12 for it. I know that. You know that. You're a guy who's going to try to buy it for 8 or 10. I'm saying that it's an important painting, and I want you to know that going in, that I know I'm going to take less from you, but I want you to know what I'm selling here is important. So sure enough, the person calls me. He says, I'm going to throw a number at you. I said, start throwing. He says, seven. And I say, hmm, you're a good customer. I want it to be in good hands. I'm going to do you a favor today. I want to send a strong message to the art buying public that Richard Powers is really important. They're never going to know you paid seven. They're going to see it listed at 12. Mm -hmm. I'll take your seven. Okay. He doesn't know that's where I was shooting for to begin with. He thinks he's gotten a, a painting practically 50% off. He's driven a hard bargain with Jane. He's done it again. Art of pricing art. Because I have information. The seller always has information that the buyer doesn't have. The buyer commands the sale. You understand this. The buyer controls the, the purchase. They either have the choice of accepting your price, negotiating it, or walking away. They have the ultimate power. But the one thing you have as sellers is information they don't have. And that information is really important for anybody who's selling, especially for collectors and dealers and so who know what they paid for it, right? Or know what, what it took to produce it. Or, knew, or you know how long you've had it hanging around in your closet. Or you know how much you hate it. <laughs> you know, and how you'd love to see it gone. And to then you say, oh, but it's one of my favorites. Because <laughs> 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 you have information they don't have. The black one, the beast, as I like to call them in retrospect. Mm -hmm. After a, a, a dreams, you know, the family said, oh, you know, because they are <coughs> my size, said, oh, this, this one has got to be worth at least 3500 4000 I said, well, before I saw it, I said, okay. They sent me a picture of it. I said, okay. Then I took it into my hands and took it into the store that I use. And she said, Jane, I'm not touching this. I can't. I can't separate it. I can't guarantee that when I try to lift the glue off, it's going to crack in half. Mm -hmm. Okay? It's a, it's a, it's a, a project for someone who is, uh, who's got a lot of time on their hands. Because the only way to, to treat this kind of painting, you know, the, the, the damage of the paint that's lost, we can fix. But the warping... Is, is almost impossible. It means putting it under very heavy and, con and uh, continually heavy boards, uh, weights, for potentially years. She says, I, can't, I don't have the time for that. I would charge you too much for that. I'm not going to take it on and, and don't bother. You know, just do what you want with it, but I'm not touching it. Okay? 
I proceed to find someone who wants a project. Right? Uh -huh. And I find someone who wants a project. And if they put the time and effort into it, and they put the weights on, in two years, potentially, it'll be flatter, and then they can spend the five or $600 to fix the paint and get it cleaned, and they could have a $2,500 painting on their hands. Mm -hmm. And with that prospect in mind, because it's unsigned, they could get a letter of provenance, which I would give them, you know, from mm -hmm. the estate. They could potentially have something of worth. So it means that even though what you have is damaged, it's still saleable at a price. You have to have someone who is willing to take on that kind of responsibility, be a steward for the art. And I found one. And the family agreed. Awesome. I said, this, this art is unsaleable. It's not even worth me shipping back to you. And this person is willing to come to my house to pick it up. Or to send his brother from, I don't know, New Jersey or whatever, to pick it up. I said, we'll be done with it. Yes, I know it's terribly cheap, but we have to be done. But this example is to show you the, the difference between dreams and reality. It is dreams, what we you know dream about when we fall asleep at night that our art could be selling for. <laughs> and the reality of what happens when you actually have to price it. Okay? I've dealt with the idea that the seller has information that the buyer doesn't have. But we're also dealing in an industry that is known for discounts. Now, I'm not here to defend them or explain them. I'm here to tell you that they exist. One out of three people that buy art from me is expecting some kind of discount. It's the same whether you're buying houses or cars, right? You don't pay the sticker price. It's unheard of. Yachts, antiques, fine jewelry, some precious objects, all are considered, in our culture, unlike pajamas we buy at Macy's. But the fact of the matter is that almost everything in this world is negotiable, and outside of the U.S., tomatoes, and everything else we, are, we buy is negotiable. In this country, we relegate negotiation to a certain limited number of items, and art is one of them. When I say industry standards, I mean every industry has a standard for what would be considered a reasonable uh, <coughs> price or a reasonable discount, okay? If you are a really dedicated book collector and are known to the book dealer and they like you a lot, they will maybe, after years of dealing with you, offer you 10% discount. That's the fine book market, the antiquarian book market. 10 measly percent after struggling to get it. In the art market, all you have to do is say, hi, I'm Jane, and they'll take off 10%. That's for saying, hello, how are you, and I'm interested in that piece. So automatically, if someone says, can you do any better, they're expecting to get 10% right off the top. That's it. I mean, it's just, that's it. And if they bought enough art from you, they're going to expect 15. And if they know you're stretched and they know you need the money, it's going to be 20. Mm -hmm. And who knows who'll be good, you know? But the fact is that it's going to be 10. I can't tell you why. In some markets, like jewelry, where the difference between wholesale and retail is known and regulated, you might say, by the, by the industry, it's what we call keystone, triple keystone. Three times re, uh, wholesale is retail price of jewelry. So if you see a ring in a jewelry store listed for $1,000, you can pretty much guess that the guy who's selling it to you 
market bought it for one third of that. Okay, that's the wholesale price. That gives a person who's negotiating a lot of latitude. I know the industry standard for galleries. In most of the United States, with the exception of the bigger markets like New York, is 100% on art. They pay the artist 50%. You all know that, right? Right. Because their margin is, right, 100%. So if you give them a painting to sell for 1,000, they're going to mark it up and sell it for 2,000. In certain high-end galleries, it's going to be 60, 40, even 70, 30, I've heard of. Outrageous. On top of that, <coughs> for the wine and the cheese and the postcards and whatever else. But nevertheless, I walk into a commercial art gallery, I know what their markup is going to be for starters. So I know that if I'm going to shoot for 20, 25% off, they're going to give me 10 right away, 15 if I talk to them for 15 minutes. And after 45 minutes, they'll have so much time invested in me that they're going to have to give me 20. Because I know what they're making. It's not that I don't want to make them a, a fair uh, a profit, just not in that much. Okay? Uh, I want to have a limit on it. Well, the primary market, however, you, is it different? We don't have that. We don't have established standards that way where we know wholesale and retail and this and so who knows what that's going to be. I can only tell you that you have to prepare for that. You have to prepare for that and you have to prepare for having to do a little bit of voodoo by being informed as to what the everybody else is doing. Let's talk really quickly, let's run through the reasons for selling and how this affects your price. So let's say you're a beginning artist, you're emerging, you're just starting out, you want to build your reputation. Well, the first thing you're going to do is you've got to be consistent in your pricing. You cannot show, but collectors have long memories, believe me. They'll remember that the price you put on a LuxCon last year that's showing the same painting, right? Is, is up from that or down from that. People, I know people who walk around and take notes on the prices, okay? They're going to remember. And especially me, I'm publishing catalogs. Of course, it's in print. And of course, they're going to know what it is. You've got to be consistent. You cannot fluctuate by your mood, uh, by how much you need the money. You've got to establish a baseline for your prices and, and not be uh, affected by your needs or your feelings of the day. You need to have show, show steady, slow progress in your prices to give new buyers hope that what they're worth, what they're paying, the things that they bought from you last year, are at least holding their value. They must have confidence in you. They don't want to see you lowering your prices. They want to see you advancing your prices, slow and steady, not wildly fluctuating and volatile, but slow progress. So new buyers coming in can look back and say, yes, you sold for a 100 last year, this year 125, next year 175, and then 250, and then 350, and then 500, and so on and so forth with benchmarks. So that they know that if they buy a painting, and generally by size, not by quality, quality is a very dangerous thing. Um, quality means different things to different people. But they know that if they want to buy a painting by you, you know, this size it's going to cost them 500 on average given, you know, general quality that's representative of your work, and something twice the size, twice as much. Okay, some sort of benchmarking here. I have a small question. Say, say, I have a small question. Say I have a show, I sell off half my pieces. I make new pieces. Should I raise the rate of the old ones or just maybe the new ones? Uh, it depends on which ones are popular. There's a reason why the ones didn't sell. If you told me you sold all of them, I'd say, okay. But there's a reason why those 
it's your turn now to analyze why 50% of what you offered did not sell, or perhaps easier, why the 50% did sell. What is it about those paintings that were so appealing to people that they were willing to pay that price? And yes, if, you're, if your new batch is like those, and it becomes your trademark, and you become known for the trees, uh, the little pigeons in the foreground, or whatever, uh, it's characteristic of your art, typifies you, and the new paintings have it, whatever that is, then yes, the new batch goes up a little bit, a little, not a lot. And the person comes to, oh, but I, I, bought, I, wanted, I want to buy one for my sister, and oh, the last time, they were only $100, and now you want $125. <coughs> oh, you know, what am I going to do? Well, you sit and you sit up, well, all right, well, last year, okay, you know, but I, I, I can't do it for the sake, so I'll split the difference and make it 112.50. A little bit, okay, you've got to advance a little bit. So, yes, if they're a steady customer, you, you want to give them that credit for times past, but then you also want to make them feel proud that they were in on the beginning of your career. They were there when you just started out, when you could have bought Richard Powers for 50 bucks on the back of his paintings. $50, $100, a Chicon, $125, right? But you were there to buy your art, you know, when it was low, got in on the game on the ground floor. But you gotta establish a generally lower the competitors because otherwise you're not going to sell. And there's nothing more depressing than not to sell. Better to sell for less than to than not to sell at all, is my feeling on emerging artists. You've got to establish something somewhere. I mean, you've got to have a beginning point. You, when somebody asks you, have you ever sold your work, you've got to look them in the eye and say, yes, I have. And not mean that you sold it to your brother-in-law or to your or to a friend, you know, someone who actually took it and framed it and put it on their wall. And in order to do that, sometimes you just have to beat the competition out and sell for less. Auctions are not good for this. They're not. Because if it fails to sell or sells for less, the world knows about it. Person to person sales, you can say to the person, I'm letting you have this for five long time. Of course they might tell somebody. But the fact is, don't play along because they want their art to be worth more. They've got a vested interest in telling the world they pay $200 more. Do you follow me on this? Yeah. Whereas in the auction, you put it up for 500 and it doesn't meet the reserve. Oh my God. You know, it becomes, it becomes dead. It's no longer fresh to the market. It becomes old news. And that's bad. You, you marked... Excuse me? You put in that last comment, uh, unless rigged. Unless rigged. The no. bigger auction, they know who they're selling to. Oh. You see, uh, let's say fancy New York auction selling New Yorkers at Do you really think that they want to, and, the, uh, and I'll pretend Marvel is sitting in the audience. It, it, I'm, not gonna, I'm using him because he's dead. Are there are living artists who are going to be sitting in the audience. Let's say five million, all right? Do you really think that their agent and the auction house and the artist and the, and the collector who already owns this artist's work wants to see that painting pass at five million? No, they do not. And therefore, there's a kind of collusion that occurs. You get calls. I get calls from auction houses. You're going to be bidding? Our auction is coming up. You're going to be bidding what interests you. You've got lots that you're interested in? 
they know ahead of time what I'm going to bid on, what my interests are, and they know about every high-end uh, bidder. They know what they're there for. In some cases, they ask them to be there. They make a show. They could have paid the five million privately. They said, please, you know, come, I'll lower the premium. You know, you won't have to pay the 15, 20% on the special for you. Um, but we're not we're gonna knock it down today. And everybody wins. It's a win-win for the auction house, for the collector who owns already, for the artist who now is a crack, and for the collector who buys it, okay, in public. They keep doing this a few more times, and five years later, it's now 15 million. It's a little game we play, I should say. And that's the rigging. So unless you know someone who owns your art, your favorite collector, your client is going to be there buying your work, it's very dangerous to do that. Because you, you won't sell. And it's not good for your career to have your art passed at auction. No. Next time out, got to be less. Did I answer your question? I, I, you're always paying for your time, or how much oil paint you used, or how much sweat and grief you put into it. Picasso, who's you know scribbled on the backs of napkins, still worth millions. Or how much talent even? Hmm. To settle the state, court order, course sale. I've been. I'm not going to waste too much time on this. I've been in this position before. Uh, I, an artist that I represented, my kids died. He got a will. I got a call from a friend uh, who passed my name along to Pennsylvania State uh, IRS. They needed someone to sell his art to settle the estate. I had six months to sell my kids' work. And that's it. All of it had to go to settle, to pay the taxes. I had to take every offer offer that was made to me. I showed it at, at uh, PhilCon, I threw it onto the eBay, uh, people got bargains. And what did I do? I worked through hundreds of pieces. I, I sold 300 posters wholesale to some guy in California who was giving away for free at a dollar each. I couldn't take the time to sell them at ten dollars each. I, I couldn't do it. That's what I mean by forced sale. Okay? Could be divorce, you know, could be, could be anything like that. Consistency is irrelevant at that point. Well, you have, you have a timeline here. You just got to get rid of it. That's it. All channels are important here. So you can't just pick one. You've got to go after the whole enchilada. I'm not going to spend a lot of time because I think, as your artist, you're not going to be necessarily involved with this, but your heirs may be. Okay. Decluttering, uh, the, the pruning, uh, uh, whatever. I generally try to uh, put things into lots so people do, books or artwork, into groups, because otherwise people are going to cherry pick the best. Mm -hmm. That's what they're going to do. Um, they're just going to take the best. They're going to, they're going to ask you for a price for all of them. Uh, they'll say, okay, I'll, I, I, the price of, of the prints is $25 each, and what if I take five? It'll be 100 Okay, I'll take that one for 20 That's what everybody does. Well, just, you see what I did here? Mm -hmm. And they'll do that every time. So just beware that that's what we're going to do. What you don't want to do is be very careful about this when you're doing it. There, it's like people selling houses. Some people have to move, and other people don't. You don't have to be like your neighbor. Just because just because your neighbor, you know, is selling their house for twenty thousand less doesn't mean you have to. I mean, you can hang in there. You don't have to just throw it onto the market and dump it. 
You don't have to have a fire sale and destroy 10 years of your work in building up your career overnight, destroying it by having a bin of prelims to pick anyone for $5. Artists have done this, by the way, at conventions. They just clear out their old closet, you know, they pull their sketches up, they throw them into a box, and they say, put a sign, anyone, 10 bucks. This is after selling their, their, pre, their pencil sketches for 125. Why? Why? You, you've got to understand that when you're selling, you may win and you may lose when it's, when it's decluttering, when it's, when it's selling to prune a collection. Here's a situation from our collection of Gary Rudell, whose works we own. And we sold this one, we sold three paintings in the same heritage auction. This one, for 500, this includes the half of the premium, $597.50. This is what the purchaser paid, okay? And we sold this one, same sale. One thousand fifteen and seventy-five cents. And this one, five thousand six hundred and seventy-six dollars. Why? Why? Is it is it really true that this one is one one fifth the value? Less than one fifth the value? I mean. <coughs> I ask you. They're all the same size. Notice the size on these. They're all signed. They're all oil and masonite. They're all the same. They're all published paperback covers. Okay, this one is ugly. Okay. Yeah, it is. Has to be sold. All three paintings we bought for Gary for the same price. $1,000. All three. We liked all three. Paid the same price. Come to the auction. We lost half on one. We lost at least 20% on the next. And look about the third. It makes everything else worthwhile now, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That's what happens when you sell an aggregate to prune. If you sell at auction, some will go for more and some will go for less. And on average, you'll come out OK. And if you look at your careers that way, you might have to save some more. To maintain an orderly market, we have to keep pricing and volatility out. This is not like comics where we're flipping. We're not flipping in this market. We're not. We're dealing with people who are buying for keeps. Uh, they're not looking to sell. Some are buying for investment, but very few, and not at, and not at the most pricing levels. Once you get over 10000 yes, you'll find people who are buying because they think it's going to be worth more. But most people who buy art in the field buy it because they love it. You know, They just are attracted to the images and they want it, not because they're going to make money on it. But the value is going to fluctuate depending on who you talk to. So you cannot just depend and say, this is, this is worth more than this because of the quality of it. Perception is quality changes from person to person. What you love and what somebody else loves are two different things. For us, all these, all these three paintings were worth $1,000. For the buyers, one was worth $5,600. Why? <coughs> because it was the first in the series? I don't know. It didn't affect us. You know, that wasn't what mattered to us. The degree of decline in the value of any commodity is directly proportional to the extent of speculation in that commodity. Once speculation stops, 
This is a really important point. So if people are speculating on your art and the bubble goes, you know what happened with foreclosures, you know? Art is like that too, the bubbles break and the Japanese lose billions in the early 90s on art they speculated on. And people can do the same thing today. Believe me, they can. They're doing it in comic art. So, how do we maintain an orderly market? Well, when time comes for me to sell personally, I do my best to do that. So, I, I acquired all these paintings at the same time from Gary Riddell at 1,000, and I sold it privately for 1,500, and this one too, in Thieves World, for 1,500, because I believe not in making it 5,000, and I don't want to lose money if I can help it, but I don't have to make a fortune. It's good enough for me, and I think that that's where these pieces should be. They were worth 1,000 then, and I think they're worth 1,500 now. I mean, you could disagree with me. I think that's a fair price. More importantly, price to sell, which I just did. To exploit the market, I'm not going to go into detail here, but let's face it, there are markets in which can be exploited. And uh, this happens from time to time in art as well. When an artist dies, for example, and the family <coughs> the price of the art overnight should be 20% more, or when an artist becomes um, exclusive to a gallery like James Gurney, and overnight he's handled by Greenwich Workshop, and a, a painting that is selling at Worldcon for 8,500, the next day is 16,000. Literally, next day. I know because I wanted to buy the painting. <laughs> As you said, you think about it. Because uh -huh. he lose the negotiations with Greenwich. Yeah. And overnight, Waterfall City. Oh. It goes from 8,500 to 16,000. And it's just too much. But that's what happens. Okay? Exploiting the market. They, they have buyers that will pay that. Not me. Me grows up in, uh, you know, the world of science fiction conventions where things are less expensive. But in the outside world there, where people think that, you know, paying 60000 is nothing for a big, beautiful painting of waterfalls, they sell it right away. And now, there's much more. So, pricing for, for the ignorant, pricing for the naive, uh, pricing for the gullible, <laughs> uh, pricing to exploit. Okay? Pricing for people who think that, you know, that it's possible to get a free lunch. It isn't. There's usually a reason why people are charging less for art of high quality. A reason you know. Uh, this is an example of what I mean by exploiting. Take a good look at this painting. Take a look at this, good, at this painting. Do you see any difference between these paintings? Anybody? You know who did this painting? Anybody? Rosetta? Yes. Yes. The, the uh, Maasai Warrior was the name of this painting. It was up at um, Heritage Auction House in a couple of years and didn't sell a couple of times. But this is another shot of it as it appeared in the catalog. But one of these is a print based on a painting as a copy. And when everybody hit the roof uh, in 2010 on the internet, they said, oh, how could you do this? This copywritten image, you know, this is what the artist had to say. Oh my God. Um, uh, you said it was print? Well, he painted the painting and they made prints. 
He painted the painting, yeah. and they made prints. And if you look closely, you'll see the grass at the bottom. Look at the grass. You see the grass? It's different. You see the grass goes across? And the grass does not. Notice that? These are two different. Notice the background here and the hills. Different. You see this, everybody? I don't know what he did with the original painting, but if you didn't know, if you didn't see the signature at the bottom, right, that said Frazetta, right? You might think that it was Frazetta. And this is how forgeries and counterfeits and other things get into the marketplace, you know? Possibility. I'm just throwing that out to you. It's rare in this, rare in this field to have forgeries and swindling and counterfeits, but I can tell you that anything that is, if it's worth forging, it will be. I've seen very little of it in, in 20 years, very few. But the ones that I've seen have been like Frazetta, Mike Whalen, uh, The Shadow, you know, things that are uh, paintings that sell 20, 30,000 up is where you can see this. So, flat, one of those things to raise cash. How badly do you need the money? Who do you know and who do you trust? Because if you really need money, please go to that person that you trust and go to your brother, go to your family. Go to your best friend, <coughs> ask for money. Do not, try not to use your cash, your, your art as collateral and you know, as just dump it on the market because you need cash. It's very illiquid. It's not a good idea. You will not be able to make money this way. You know, you can take your art to your, your your jewelry to the pawn shop. You cannot take artwork to the pawn shop this way. The faster you need money, the lower the price. Okay? Just be careful for that. If you need to sell it today, I'll buy it from you. Uh, just pay a pittance for it. <laughs> I will. And you'll be, you'll be hating my guts the next day, but you'll have to do it because you need the money. Try to live your life in such a way that you never get stuck this way. It's really hard to do. Freelancers have a very hard time in stabilizing their income. It's feast or famine. When they get the jobs and they have the money, then they pay their bills and everything is hunky-dory and they're ahead of the game. And then comes the famine and they have nothing and they use up all their savings and they're really stretched thin. I don't know the answer to this, but money management is hard and you're going to have to do that via like a budget or something so you don't get strapped for cash so that the only thing of value that you own is your art. That's just, just not a good, a good thing to do. Try to borrow it maybe against it, you know, and then be able to get it back again with like a like pawn shop. If you said you need to sell it in a week or a month or three months or could be never, who cares? It alters the price. I just bought back a painting from somebody that I had sold to them in uh, it was 2004. I remember exactly. I sold it to them for $4,500 and I bought it back to them for $2,000. Mm -hmm. They called me and they said, I need money. I said, go, go to the auction house, go to eBay, you know, go someplace else. Because you know, if I buy it from you, I'm going to pay you half, less than half of what you paid me. I'm going to hate to do it. I really don't want to take advantage of you, but I'm going to have all the exposure and the risk. I like this painting, but now I'm going to have to sit with it until I can sell it again. And now I'm going to own it. I said, I'll take it. It's not mine. So, to earn a living wage, which is, I guess, what most of you are, 
here. Think outside the box. This goes without saying. I suppose to many of you, everybody's telling you to be creative, but just don't be creative in your artwork, for goodness sakes. There's other ways that you can be creative. Marketing and selling, you know, using creativity is limited to art. Scientists are creative, you know, not just musicians. Not everybody is a marketer. If you know that you can't make conversation, just like me, get somebody to sit with you at the table who can. You know, get somebody else to stand up for you to make that conversation for you because you don't want to be sitting there not looking up for hours and doodling and drawing sketches at conventions, never looking up at anybody, you know, hiding from the world, you know, looking like you're doing something. No, no, you don't want to do that. You, know, you want to be out there. And so play to your strengths. You can just paint, let somebody else talk. And talk about you. Right? Well, look what he's doing. Look how he's handling the brush. You know, let's all gather around. Let's watch so-and-so paint. You know, someone to be your, your cheerleader. You know? Be prepared for retraining. And by retraining, I don't mean learning digital. <laughs> okay, that's the retraining I'm talking about. You'll do that on your own. I'm talking about retraining to do what I'm talking about here, like looking at the comparables, looking at what other people are doing, research auction records, keep up with popular culture, know what's selling, take a look at the world and what they're buying. Are we moving away from Tolkien into science fiction again? Are we moving from that palette to this palette? Are things getting browner? This kind of thing, right? You know, Keep up. Talk to other collectors. What are they buying? Just because they're not buying your art. What are you buying here? They walk by you. They see them carrying out. What'd you buy? Oh, you bought so-and-so's work. Why'd you buy it? What did you have that I don't have? That's basically what your question is. What did he have that I don't? We're trying to find that out. Survey collectors ask, what would they be willing to buy if you made it and put it in front of them? Would they buy it? Would, they, would you buy this painting of my dragon if the wings were up instead of down? Take a survey, hmm. you know? If necessary, pay somebody for an appraisal. I mean, find somebody who's actually qualified to tell you what your mark, mark, art should sell at to get it sold. Not pie in the sky. Look to see what appeals to people. Ask yourself for this painting. Is this a, the best I can do? Am I a brand name? Am I Boris? You know, am I? Answer this question. Is there really something special about this image that's different from the dragon I painted last year? Is there something special here? Is it, is it by first painting in oils and that's what makes it special and all the rest for watercolor? Uh, take a good look at what it is. All things being equal, people, collectors pay more, for oils on the canvas, then acrylics on board, then watercolors on paper, then pencil, then prelims, then reproductions. That's it. In the same way people pay more for sculptures in bronze, then sculptures in wood, then sculptures in resin. You, you follow? There's a hierarchy here to things, you know, so all of these things count and the publication source and the provenance and all these other things if your collector matters. Be sensitive to your buyer. That's homework assignment number three. Okay? Know who you're dealing with when you're pricing art. 
I call these the types of art, of art buyers. Let's go back for a minute, talk about the ultra-sensitive, just for a second, just so you know what I'm talking about. The ultra-sensitive is a person who just would never talk about price. It's beneath them. It's too banal. It's too coarse. We just don't want to discuss that here. So please don't raise the subject. It's the last thing in the world I want to do it would it would it would impede my appreciation for the aesthetics of the art. To this person, you do not raise the price. Okay? They're not gonna ask and you're not gonna offer. You're just gonna let them sit there and appreciate it. The last thing in the world is, would you like to buy it? And they say sure. And only then, potentially, but they got their checkbook. And the very last thing they ever do, they say, so how much is it? They're going to pay for it. Okay? The thick skin, it doesn't make any difference. It's the first thing out of their mouth. You can tell them anything you want about the price. It's high, it's low, it's too expensive for you, it's cheap. They don't, that's the first thing they want to know. How much is it? They don't care about anything else. Thick skinned, suspicious. They don't want to make a decision, you know? Is it real? Is it really signed by Frazetta? Is it really from 1957? Is it, you know, is it really the best they can do? Is it really this and really that? And the know-it-all. They're going to tell you what the painting is. Mm. They're there to tell you what you're doing. I love those types. <laughs> right? They're going to tell you why you painted it, how you painted it, why it's not worth this, why it's not worth right, why it's not worth that. They know it all. And nothing else. they're going to tell you what they paid for something else two years ago that was just like this, because they know everything about the field. There's nothing you can tell them about this. You just have to let them keep chattering. It drives you insane. <laughs> Until they run out of things to sell, to, 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 to sell to you, you know, to make them worth, they think, because I've asked such people, why can you do this? Why are you telling me something that I already know? You think that I don't know this? I mean, when I get to know them, I say, no, you know. Why? Oh, because they want to impress me. <laughs> they don't want me to think they don't know anything about buying art. Oh my God, okay. Well, chatter on. Tell me why oil is better than acrylics. Of course it is. And why you would never want to buy anything that was not on stretch canvas. <sighs> Gullible, I uh, believe anything you tell them. You say it's, uh, they say, how much is it? I say, oh, let me look here. Oh, 3,500. Oh, okay. Silence. <laughs> they don't say, oh, that's good, that's bad, they'll either take it or they walk away. They won't even enter negotiations. They're just, they're, they believe what they hear. If you tell them it was made in 1960, they believe it. If you tell them that you painted underwater uh, when you were sick one day, you know, we got the flu, they'll, they'll believe it. They believe anything you tell them, and that's very dangerous because you can start spitting tales of all the trouble you went to make it, and you find yourself caught up in these long tales that you ask yourself, why am I doing this afterwards and wasting my time when they're not buying it anyway? All right? Because they'll believe what you say. So you tell them stories. Just be aware of what you're doing. When you find yourself doing that, correct yourself or just ask yourself, why am I doing this? The self-conscious type is afraid of making a mistake. They say, Frazina? Uh, uh, Ooh. I say, oh no, Frazetta, oh, I didn't say that. No, Frazetta, you know, they're afraid to pronounce the artist's name, they're afraid to make a mistake. Like they, you, do you know what I mean? You know what I'm coming across here? They, they really are self-conscious uh, about what they like, about what they buy, 
but they hang on their walls, so they're afraid, and you have to make them feel comfortable. It's really okay to have a painting of bats. Mm -hmm. Eating human flesh. <laughs> in our bedroom, it's okay. <laughs> I do all the time. I know many people who do. But you can't exactly say that to them. You have to make them feel comfortable with their choices, and however eccentric, however unusual they are, especially when it comes to commissions. You know, I, I want her with few boobs. And you would just have to say, okay, no problem. I can do that. Did we skip the impulse buyer? Excuse me? Did we skip the impulse buyer? The impulse buyer. The impulse buyer. Oh, the impulse buyer is the one that <laughs> you show them the other. I'll take that. Oh, wait, no, wait. I'll, I'll take that one too. <laughs> no, wait a second. Uh, maybe not. Okay, okay, no, I'll just take that one. No. <laughs> Well, wait a minute. No, I'll take them both. How much for both? Uh, no, my wife's not going to let go. I'll take this one instead. I'll, I'll tell you what. Let me just think about it. Yeah. And, and then, of course, they're sorry. And the next day they come back and they say, do you still have that one, that other one, the one that I like second best? Well, I really, I, I thought about it. I really like the other one better. Do you mind if I switch? <laughs> yeah. Uh, they can drive you insane. They do. <laughs> so I'm just saying that know your buyer. That will help you in setting your prices, keeping to your prices, knowing how to discount the dealing. Okay. Here's an experiment. We're all going to participate here. Here's two paintings that sold. Uh, Star Series number one, John Berkey, paperback, 62. You can read. This is what the Heritage Auction House put in its condition report. Linear scratch along bottom edge. I mean, I'm not saying it, but okay. Linear scratch, otherwise in good condition. How much? Mm. Same sale. Ooh. John Berkey, unpublished, undated, pre-1997, but signed on the back. You can see that they showed you that. Paint loss, reading, otherwise good. How much? Take a good look. Anybody know John Berkey here? Raise your hand. Anybody keep up with any auction prices at all? No? Okay. Take a good look. Prices. Anybody? Five. Perhaps unfair. 18,000. Excuse me? 18,000. Hmm. Well, nowadays it, it's possible, but in 2011, the one that was the Star Series number one sold for $8,300, $8,365. And the other one, 26, uh, 2,800. Hmm. 8,365, hmm. 2,868. Wow. A quarter. <coughs> Simply because it's unpublished, undated. All right? Even though it's a lonely spaceship. Those things really mattered. Even though this is smaller. Thank you. See how this, yes. Do you recommend to always sign anything on always the front with everything. your name? Everything. Okay. Mm -hmm. I know. must sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do not let it out of your studio. Maybe break out our paints. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I sign everything. <laughs> Can I borrow your pen? Really nice on the back. Book the job. Okay. You'll forget it. I don't, I don't put a date on it. Though. Oh, I'll never forget this one. Yeah. Believe me, you'll forget. 
You'll forget what it was published title was. You'll forget when you did it. You'll forget the art director's name. You'll forget all of this. So if you can, put it on the back, and the collectors really like to see that. They like to have it, just yes. like they like the magic cards. They like to have this provenance on the back, and you must sign. Let's try a couple others. Boris. In the Heritage Catalog, estimate three to 5,000. Minimum bid of 1,500. Sold for $4,900 in, right? in 2009. Let me guess. Can you tell why? This one, estimated four to five. Close. Minimum bid $3,500, not $1,500. Did not sell. Minimum bid's too high? Huh? Minimum bid's too high? Minimum bid, yes. Mm -hmm. But not just that. Look at the that. image. What do you think people want from Boris? This is what appeals to people who want Boris Sable art. You know, we have to be objective about this. There's just no way around it. And this doesn't have it. Okay? It's dark. It's gloomy. Right? Look at the colors. Look at the colors. I mean, for God's sakes, it's pop. Right? Over the top pop and straws. Look at the design on the bottom. You know? That's Boris. Right? Look at the dragon. And he's done this before. It's typical. It's his work. The, the pose. Everything. It's earlier. It's 1979 Boris. Remember, this is the top... This is what people want. They want mm -hmm. classic Boris. People who collect Boris want the stuff from, from Mirage and landscape, uh, landscapes and, and so on of, of, of the mid-70s to 82 and 85. This is the high, the high time or early. This is when Boris was, was, was hot, okay? I'm not saying that ladies of fantasy or whatever, you know, it's not good. I'm, I'm saying that people who know Boris want Mirage. So 79 is a good day. And 1986 is not. <laughs> it's not. The, 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 the ladies are just, they don't have it. Okay? And, it's, and the background's ugly. And, and there's not a contrast, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes? So can you say the more a piece represents what the artist is known for, the higher the price? Yes, that's true. Typically, there are many factors. But remember what I said. Yes, is this the best the artist can do? Yeah. It's what he's known for. Did he start out that way? No. It's possible that you can make your name doing something you never imagined that you would do. And all of a sudden, there you are with Dinotopia. And you can't escape. <laughs> you can't. You made your career out of it. Yeah. And people want only that. They just don't want anything else. And you feed that market. And you feed it and feed it and then and they want more of it. And you try to do something else. You do. You try to pay parrots instead of instead of geese, but it doesn't work. They just don't want it. They want parrots. And so you give up. So you, you paint parrots in the woods and paint parrots on the mountaintops and, you know, you just go through and then you make stories about parrots and you just keep on pushing it until you're a parrot painter. Paratopia. This is what happens with famous artists. This is how Picasso becomes Picasso in the Rose period. We know it's in. You know, you you know, look, we know it's Finley. Can you think of artists who found ways to not get trapped? Oh, sure. Well, Picasso's one. You're a genius. 
That's one way. <laughs> I'm serious. If you can reinvent yourself, if you have that, yes, you can. You can. Another way, I just talked to an artist this morning, and he said, how do you do this? I said, you change your name. You, you basically work under two names. And so I told the story of Les Edwards and Edward Miller. Les Edwards, who made his fame and fortune doing splatter gore, British horror covers for Grafton and Arrow and all the guys in, in the 1980s in the heyday of British horror. And he became known for that. He couldn't get other work. They didn't want it. They heard the name Les Edwards and they immediately got horror. And horror wasn't selling. And he was out, he couldn't get jobs. So he invented Edward Miller. Edward Miller painted wonderful classical scenes in a completely different style of, of fantasy and science fiction. And Edward Miller started getting commissions. It took a couple of years before his wife finally disclosed to his clients, the publishers, that they were one and the same person. Okay? So you can do that. You can paint under another name. Okay, that's your question. How can you do that today? You have to go to conventions if people know you. Well, it's hard, but you can. You can. People do that very often for different markets. This is their work right. for the children's market, and this is the work for the adult market. It looks very different. Um, who paints this way? Let's see. Uh, like Phil Folio, I think, has yes. those different styles, and comic cartoon style, and a you know, more painterly style. Um, you, I'm sure you can think, huh? Rick Barry painted it Ragsdale, right? He painted, remember? Painted his illustration art as Ragsdale, and, and, and Rick Barry was his more fine art. Yeah, but I mean, you can have different styles for different marketplaces. You can develop that. Um, and you can become good at it enough so that people accept you in those different markets. So uh, it's possible that you could be wonderful uh, portrait painter of pets, <laughs> pet portraits, and you go to dog shows and you uh, paint to order all the different breeds of dogs with their owners and, do, and are and advertise in dog world and do wonderful realistic, you know, and then in this market you're painting dragons or wizards or something else, right? And, and you're developing your market in both, and pricing differently too, in both markets. So you can do that. Here's an example of, of what I mean by uh, asking questions of what something is worth. Okay? So, Murray Tinkleman. Does anybody here know who Murray Tinkleman is? Good, only about four people. Because that would be fun. Yeah. So I was offered, somebody wrote me an email and they said, I've got a, a Murray Tinkleman for sale. I want to sell, okay? How much should I ask for? Are you good at, well, first do you want to buy it and make me an offer? And I say, of course, how much do you want for it? You're the one who called me, remember? <laughs> you're supposed to know how much your stuff is worth. How would you know if I offered you 800 whether it was acceptable or not if you don't know what you've got? Right. So anyway, did he sell it or not? He told me that he didn't know what to put up, price on it. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to the, uh, the internet. And I went and looked up Chicken Warrior. <laughs> Only three paintings in history apparently are sold in public auction by Tingleman. Estimated 1400 to 1800 Did it sell? Think about what you just saw. <laughs> Think about you asking me a question. You know, you have to paint the same for different markets, right? Here's Tinkleman, here's Tinkleman, and here's Tinkleman. <laughs> well, it just so happens that this Tinkleman is Charles Dexter Ward, Lovecraft cover, offered for heritage sale, Valentine book, 2008. 
estimated 4,000 to 5,000. This one was estimated to 1,400 to 1,800. Pending. Price? Did sell? Which one sold? Lovecraft. Lovecraft sold. Lovecraft sold. Because it had the cover, it had the Tinkerman style, it had everything that you could possibly want from a Tinkleman, if you wanted Tinkleman. On the other hand, the first one had nothing. It had a white background and totally, you know, nothing, right? Sort of ugly, not really art, art, you know, to a person who's collecting. You have to really be stretched to buy this. I said to the guy, I'll give you 840. He says, I wouldn't sell it for this. And not only that, but Heimler Haldeman signed the back of it. I said, like, I care. Is <laughs> Haldeman the artist? No. He went away. It's okay. This one did not sell. Shake it out. We're dealing with remember a moving target. I'm going to finish up here by saying we're dealing with, a, with art in a, with a, in a moving field. We're, in, we're living through, as the Chinese would say, interesting times. A field in transition as we're moving from a situation where it's no longer an esoteric collectible, but yet it's still not Georgian silver, Majolica pottery, Greek coins. It's not there. Okay? It is somewhere, it's just not there. It's not in a, in, in, right? So it's in transition. It's getting it. It's not just emerging anymore, but it's not yet fully a fully functioning thing. It's still a like comic art, like anime. You know, it's still sort of a, like poster art. It's still a, a sort of on the fringes of things. It doesn't have firm boundaries. You know, it, it makes it hard to price. I I feel for you. I have the problem too. You know, when you're dealing in a market that doesn't have you know firm boundaries, as if it was made before Edward II. You know, it's worth X. We're dealing, we're dealing with eroding demand. Demographics. Demographics and the recession is cutting into this market. It's also cutting into the market at a time of short supply for illustration art. The, the supplies of illustration art are dwindling, but on the same time, the collecting base is in transition. We're dealing with a younger market that is not buying illustration art because they remember reading the book when they were 12. That's who I deal with, for Ben and Art, you know. They want to know it's Heinlein or Bradbury or Philip K. Dick. People here, you know, are younger than 40 are not buying for that reason. You'll, you'll find them, maybe in 10 years, buying magic cards for that reason, mm -hmm. for nostalgic reasons. It's driven this field for, for the 40 years that I've collected in this field, that nostalgia, and that's changing because we no longer have a world of readers. We have a, a, a world of gamers, of moviegoers, of, you know, those younger people, and they're not going to buy it simply because it was on the cover of a book. They're going to buy it because they really love it, because they are attached, but they want to paint it in that style. They want to paint it illustrative art, it's not illustration, it's good for you. Okay, because you have a chance here to build an entire new uh, field of collectors that are not attached personally to that thing because they had it as a kid. You know, it, it, but it's an interesting problem. So, it's also a problem because people buy for irrational reasons in this field. In all art, is, is guided to which makes voodoo the what I call it because I have to have some of that irrationality built into me too. So I can I can go with that irrationality on that side. 
You know, they're not going to buy it because of rational reasons. They're going to fall in love, I hope, you know? And they, unlike previously, art collectors are comparison shoppers. They've been raised to be consumers in the United States, and they do this every Sunday with the supermarket coupons, and they do it with store sales, and they do it every time they buy a, you know, a color TV, comparison shopping, and it's going to affect you here with all the competition. They're going to walk, you've heard it already, I'm going to walk around the show, I'm going to compare, and they all compare. This one's 4,500 and 2,307, and compare. They're going to maximize their dollars. They have a budget. They only have 6,000 to spend. If they spend it all with you, then they can't spend it with you. And comparison, you're going to have to deal with that comparison. They do it on the internet, on all the websites, and they do it on Google and eBay. That's it. We're having a demographics influx and a field influx, and I guess you're the new wave. You know, you're the the artist coming up, having to price into this market, and it's not an enviable position to be in. I can only tell you that you have to apply some some uh, strategic uh, planning to this. Yes. All right. I just have a two-part question. I'm kind sure. of speaking on behalf of a lot of the people in here around my age working digitally and wanting to sell prints, and they're wondering number of prints, how do you establish value of something that can be replicated? And my second question is, my, my personal solution to this is sort of, um, well, like, sort of like what Dave Seeley is doing, is you know, starting digitally and getting a lot done that way, but then finishing traditionally, so it's a unique piece. But I was just wondering what your take is on um, collectors and the, and the digital medium. Uh, okay, well, I'm going to tell you from what I know of collectors. Collectors today are reverse to multimedia pieces. They want pure painting. Yeah. They want one-offs, purely. Am I right, Mark? And this is a problem for people. It was a problem for people painting with overlays back 15 years ago. It made a problem for me to sell for Ned Dameron, for example, who painted on Mylar overlays. He said, it works in comics. Why can't I do it for art? Because it won't. People want you know, a piece all in once. It's a problem. I've talked to Dave Seeley about this. I mean, it, it, it's there. It's, a, it's a, a, a problem, a challenge for you. You can be like Leroy Neiman. You can print off reproductions, call them multiple originals. Take the print and overpaint it. Make, a, make the car orange in this one and pink in the other one and call it an original. You can try to get away with it. I don't think it's going to work here. We've got a, a history in this field of not accepting these kinds of gimmicks. Okay, That's all I can tell you. It's going to be a problem. As for reproductions, there's two ways you can attack this problem, from the bottom up or the top down. The bottom up is, it cost me $2 to print it, $4 to mat it, $10 to frame it, just follow along here. And since I have to pay a, a jobber, his 25%, I'm gonna, multiply, I'm gonna make it four times what it costs me. Okay, that way I can wholesale it for 50% less. That's the, I'm talking fast here, I know, it's the bottom up. The top down is what are what are other people selling their art for in this field? It, is it a fine art print or not? If it's just a multiple open edition, fifty bucks, you know, in this field, okay. In the fine art market, no, five hundred. You have to price within your industry. You're not selling in a gallery in, in Paris, okay. You're selling an open edition. And so from the top down, comparison, you, your history, you as an artist, what you get for your art, 
that, and I'm saying reproduction and not print. It's not a, you know, it's not like a, a lithographic print on stone or something. You know, it's, it's really a, a reproduction of digitally, let's say. But you can make a tiered approach. You can put the sheet clay, you can mount it on canvas, and make a canvas replica for 150. And uh, you know, you can then play all these games. You can, you can, you can call it an AP. You know, 10 APs, and no difference whatsoever. <laughs> you can remark them. You can, you know, make one special. You can letter them and make them special. You can multiple editions. You can make one seven by ten and ten by sixteen and fifteen by twenty. Same image with a fifty dollars spread between them. I mean, there are many marketing ways to go about this. One thing that I've seen be really successful uh, mind-boggling ways conventions yes. is when people mat a print and do a drawing on the mat, so the drawing is an original. Mm -hmm. So it's a way for them to resell it for, I mean, it's, it's still just a print, but now there's a little drawing involved. That's right. It's, but it's just like cards. You know, people are now doing, uh, you know, uh, drawings on the backs of cards. Mm -hmm. uh, I forgot what the alternate, uh, uh, altered cards. They make a whole business out of this. Taking their artist proofs, which are black, uh, you know, blank, and then making or overpainting the front to make an own little painting and stretching the amount of money that you can make because art, the cards themselves are collectible. So they're, they're piggybacking the card collecting market. You can only get one, one sale from the art of 300 to whatever, 600 bucks. But you can make rules of money just overpainting cards two by three inches, right? I know artists who are making money on the side this way. Yes. Somebody had a question? I did. Yes. Uh, so let's say. Um, I or somebody else is a new artist that nobody's ever seen, and this is the first time somebody's seeing my work. Can you describe some of the non-subjective factors that a potential collector would take into account when looking at purchasing your work? So non-subjective meaning not the work, not the quality, not the uh, not the subject or the sort of desirability based on how they like the work, but um, say your reputation, your size, your tonality, the uh, you know, the clients you've worked for. Can you describe the credibility that you can build the factors? Yes, I can. <coughs> As a matter of fact. And I'm just going to make a little list here, if I can find it. Um, I don't know if I can or not, but, but so I'll wing it, if I, if I can't find it here, um, of, the, of the factors that influence the price of your particular art. Forget about it. Is this, they'll look at, they'll look at your art, and they'll say, let's assume that you say they've never seen it before. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? They're cold, but they want to be there. Okay, so we're going to say that they're a prospect. Uh, they're, they're there because they want to, because they're interested in the art. They're, they're going to see when they're there to see yours, because if you're following me. You know, so not, they're not going out of their way. They're at this convention, so they're here because they're, they're open-minded. They're here to buy and like, see art of the kind that you're going to make. Am I following? Yeah, yeah. So you already know that you have a prospect. Okay, not a suspect. <laughs> in marketing, there's a difference. A suspect, it can be anybody. Literally anybody. It's like selling on a direct mail piece. It could be anybody in the world. You know, like walking out into the avenue in the street and say, come on over here, I got something to show you. Okay. A prospect is someone who wants to be sent that direct mail piece. They are already in the market for buying real estate or, or insurance or whatever. So they're prepared to want your art, okay? This is kind of important to you. So, then they look at your art and then they say, compared to other art I have seen, 
where do you fit in? And they're gonna act, and they're gonna go through this really quickly. They're gonna say, well, they, they know I've never, you're new. Oh, I've never seen your art before. And they're gonna think to themselves, whose art is this like? You know, is this like any other, they have a frame of reference. Is he painting like Boris? Is he painting like Donato? Is he painting Brandywine School? You know, um, where is he taking his influences? If they can't figure that out, they might ask you that question. So you might want to have an answer for that one. Uh, because no one, no one is just like, uh, the, you know, a, a brand new thing that, that no one has seen before. Okay? This is not like, this is like the first time they've ever seen your work. Everybody takes inspiration somewhere. You went to school, you had a teacher, a mentor, somebody. So whether you know it or not, there's a, there's a line, a lineage that your art has. And they're going to think to themselves, what is this? And, it, and for me, I say, is it hitting me? And I know, because uh, I'm pretty decisive, within moments, an example would be this morning I bought something at this convention, uh, a a this long pile of magic card art, and I've never bought from this artist before. Okay. Although I had seen his name, I know his name, but I never really plumbed the depths of what he did. I went like this. This one. Boom. That's it. I looked at it and I said, okay. Hold it up. And I said, and here comes the hard part. Because on the back it's $350. We can take 200 Okay. Done about 32 seconds of making this decision. I'm that kind of a collector. If I find it and I like it and I can afford to buy it and I can, you know, afford to buy $200, I'll buy it. They'll do the same for you. The, the, what, that's what's going through their mind. Do I, am I touched by it? Is it an immediate but provocative thing? You can't sell a person on art that doesn't want it. It's not like selling a car. Nobody needs art. That's the thing. It's totally without function. Totally useless. It has no, absolutely no, tangible value, other than that that we place on it as a culture. None, zero, zilch. And so it's all amorphous. It's all pretend. This entire thing is just vapor. Okay? There's nothing that says that you're worth this. That, that Maxwell Parrish is worth half a million, and your art is worth 25 cents. You know, other than what we all collectively decreed it should be. I know this is a roundabout way of answering. Everybody's got their own reason, but you can ask them. There's a whole list of things they'll say, and you should. What do you collect? Do you collect card art? Do you collect this? What, do, what have you bought? How many pieces do you own? Why are you here? How far did you travel? Have you bought anything yet? Okay. So are you well, saying general desirability sort of trumps um, the investment aspect or the the feeling that they're getting in, you know, a new artist early in their career? They may think that, but you shouldn't say that. You know, you should never say that. You know, that's really arrogant to say, you know, we better buy it now because next year it might be worth twice as much. You know, that's <laughs> unseemly and potentially untrue. So you, you don't want to say that, but of course, it's, if they don't know who you are, I'm, I'm representing someone here who is exactly in that situation. DDA Profe. It's the first time he's selling, he's in this country, selling his art in France. 
The very first time he ever exposed his art to anyone in this country was at the Worldcon in Reno. The very first time. And I started representing him six months ago. And I sold maybe, he sent me 11 pieces. And I sold two. And I took the smaller ones into, into Reno. And he said, you've got to show my big one. You know, my, you got my best. I said, but you know, you know, people who work on don't have a lot of money. They're, they're not the kind of buyers that they spending thousands of dollars on. He said, yeah, but it's my first time. I've got to show them what I can do. Oh. Well, how can you not? <laughs> I said, you're going to pay for the shipping. Then I'll pay for the shipping back if it doesn't sell. Oh. Okay. I said, it's going to cost you a lot of money to ship. You know, but really, it does. I said, you put the shipping in, you're on a crate. And then he says, and I can't, I will not take less than 85 for the translation from euros and my commission, $8,500. Mm. $8,500 $8, on the bid sheet. Does everybody know uh, oh, yeah. what, like, what I'm talking about? Say bid yeah. sheets? Mm -hmm. Okay, so $8,500 for this painting that's 40 by, by 26, mm. and all these small ones that are running from 950 to $1,500. Mm. <laughs> okay, that's, that's what I'm showing. And I said, I told him, you're, you're, this is not going to happen. You know, you, I'm not going to be able to do this. This is just not that kind of convention. Uh, you're asking for a lot. It's like, you know, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Okay. Come Saturday at the convention. And I look and I say, oh my God, there's a bid. $8,500. <laughs> this painting, George R. R. Martin. Oh my God. I said, oh my God. He said, he said, walk on water. This is not true. He said, this is fluke. I said, you can't, you can't plan for this. You know, if somebody walks through the door and falls in love with your art and it's five times more than, than, than anything else, you can't plan for this. You can't, you can't. And I wouldn't have guessed it. My husband thought I was nuts. He said, what are you doing anyway doing this? You know, this crazy. So here, and so here he is. Nobody here knows him. He speaks pretty good English. But all his book covers are for French publishers. Nobody can say, oh, I, I, I remember that. You know, David Eddings or Belgarian cover from the books that I read. You know, they don't know that. They don't know any, anything about him other than what they're seeing in front of their eyes. And what they're seeing in front of their eyes is, I guess, what Martin saw is something damn good. And I'm counting on that. And so if you have that, you don't have to really worry as much. I mean, you have something special, you know, that I said, a unique characteristic that's only you. I think. So uh, I don't know if I've answered that question, but you, uh, what Good. can I say? Sure. Add that. Something you can sure. <laughs> Something you try. So here he is, new. We'll see what happens. And uh, I guess past time, we've got to go. I hope you've got a good time here. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Drawn Today podcast. If you have any questions or comments on the podcast, feel free to contact us at drawntoday@gmail.com. The Drawn Today podcast is a proud member of the Visual Artist Podcast Network. You can find more information about VAPN at visualartistpodcastnetwork.com. If you'd like to listen to archived episodes of the podcast, please visit us at drawntodaypodcast.blogspot.com. And as always, you can find the Drawn Today podcast on iTunes. Today's music for the podcast was provided by Collide.
find more about Collide and their music at collide.net. <laughs>